This is the Cover 2 Podcast with Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Brady on the deep drop, stands in, fires down the middle for Gronkowski, makes the grab at the 45, spinning away from defenders. He's gone to the 20, to the 10, to the 5, to the end zone. The Cover 2 Podcast on Patriots.com. The play fake and the throw to the end zone for Antonio Brown. Touchdown, Pittsburgh. Nobody covers the NFL like the guys from Cover 2. Eight different receivers have caught a pass from Matt Ryan today. He's looking to throw again. Wide open, Julio Jones has it. And in the end zone, touchdown, Falcons. Now, Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Welcome to this week's episode of the Cover 2 Podcast with Banks and Stevens. I am Don Banks, joined again by Nick Stevens, my co-host, my football uh, aficionado friend, and a big-time fan of the New England Patriots, I might add. Nick, uh, impossible not to start today's podcast, I think, with um, talking about the story that is consuming both, I think, our nation's attention span and obviously... Uh, to a degree, the NFL's attention span, and that is the um, really the tragedy that has unfolded since Friday in Houston uh, with Hurricane Harvey and the massive and really breathtaking flooding. Uh, it has spawned um, clearly uh, many, many relief efforts. J.J. Um, Watt, the defensive end for the Texans, obviously is in the midst of a um, an online uh, fundraising on behalf of the victims of the flooding in the Houston area. Uh, Robert Kraft of the Patriots has s- stepped up. Uh, Robert McNair, the Texans owner. Um, NFL uh, Charities. I NFL think. Foundation. Yeah, yes. NFL Foundation has, has matched a $1 million gift. So a lot of people giving, obviously, a lot of good uh, deeds unfolding in the Houston area. Um there's already talk, um, clearly, this Thursday night's game in Houston against the Cowboys was moved, flipped to Dallas. Uh, I wasn't even sure they were going to play that game, the, the, the ultra-meaningless fourth preseason game. But there's already talk about the opener. Houston opens at home on the 10th of September uh, playing Jacksonville. There's the potential that that game could be moved to Jacksonville uh, and just do a, a straight one-for-one flip of that series if, indeed, the roads aren't passable yet because that's the clearly the, the concern for safety. I think that's the right call and the only call at this point because even if the roads are passable, and you may say right now with 12 days out perspective, a, a little thousand-foot view, Oh, well, it'll be so important for the city to be able to get together rally to around. congregate and yeah. rally around it. But this infrastructure is failing miserably. Like just in the time from when we left for work to us recording here, another levee's been breached in Houston. And it's a mess. And these donations and the cause and the concern and the charity from everyone is so heartwarming. But it's going to be a mess for the very foreseeable future. And I only hope that they can take the time to heal what they need to and work on what's best because football is important as we saw in 2006 with the saints that sure. was the rallying cry and the cause for the city afterwards but katrina post katrina uh there's no post right now to harvey they're still in the thick of it and it's just a miserable situation just breaks your heart well with the rain i mean predicted to continue until thursday possibly even friday um and the flood you know the flood threat is not going away anytime soon um it's 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 not too far down the road to start thinking about that opener. But even 
even Thursday night's preseason game, it certainly seemed reading between the lines that no one with the Texans, J.J. Watt included, thought it was all that important to play this game. Now, I realize they're playing it in Dallas, and I believe they're going to have some of the ticket proceeds um, go to the relief efforts, all well and good. Uh, But I've heard it said, and I kind of agree with this, you know, strictly – uh, from a football perspective, it probably would have been just as advantageous for the Texans and Cowboys just to practice together up at the Star, the new uh, Cowboys training facility in Frisco, Texas, north of Dallas, and just have a couple joint scrimmages. Just have a couple um, open to the public, charge $10 a head, give the money to the relief efforts. Because that fourth preseason game, you're not putting the starters out there anyway. So you're going to try to play, in essence, most of those guys that are going to now be on that cut-down list from 53 to 90 in one fell swoop after this game. I would have rather seen the two teams just do that. Do that. You said earlier in the all-together or uh, continuingly more meaningless preseason, and I think there are fans of a number of teams across the NFL, not to take away from our discussion of Houston and the importance of fundraising for that city in duress, but there are fans of a number of teams across the league right now who would who wish that they actually were just watching a bunch of coordinated scrimmages and not the games. And if you had tickets to this game, you're not going to be pursuing a refund. You don't care about that. You want to see the money and the time allocated to who and what needs it most, and that's the residents of and the entire city of Houston. Yeah, agreed. And I, um, I saw a headline. I want to say it was the New York Times before I left home. The governor, Governor Abbott in Texas, basically told Texas residents, you know, prepare for a whole new way of life after this. And I think they're laying the groundwork. This is not going to be a week-long event. This is this cleanup, this recovery is going to take months and, and in some cases perhaps years. And I think, you know, sometimes when we're this close to a tragedy of this scope, we don't stand back far enough and see it in its width and its breadth and its entirety. And I think... You know, I think this is going to impact um, a lot of people um, who count on the NFL for their livelihood, but also, you know, not to talk strictly football, but I I wonder how much of an impact this is going to have on the Houston Texans season. If indeed they do play at Jacksonville in the opener, I think they start the league uh, calendar with uh, the regular season with three straight away games. It's going to you know, be the story that is the backdrop of the Houston Texans two-time division winner. Um, So once again, another AFC contender that kind of has something to contend with that we didn't expect. Certainly a team that people are going to be pulling for regionally and nationally as well, because we know how important it is. And I think you put it best a minute ago there. We have other priorities right now, but football will be the welcome distraction and for the residents of the area and also there's a lot there's i mean i've we've both been down to houston before we've seen what a machine it is down there football is life in texas especially in that area and if that gets taken away from them during a time of tragedy like this i mean those the i you just i don't i don't know where to start and where me feeling badly for that area ends at this point i don't think there really is any end to it and you're right this is extreme weather this could be the dawning of a new age of of messes and misery and we have to just everyone can do anything they can you can text in to donate money to them you've got people like mayor walsh here in boston helping to contribute making sure they're raising money and people are donating blankets and diapers and all the bare necessities so if you're home right now listening to us or you're in the car you can find a way to donate 
easily, and I hope everybody does. We're going to take a little uh, sidestep, same story, but here's what not to do. The Rangers and Astros had a series, uh, three-game series, scheduled for Houston. And the Astros, and this is making the rounds on the Internet, and Texas Rangers are deservedly getting crushed on the Internet and in the court of public opinion because the Astros asked if they could just flip the three-game series and the Rangers said no. They were willing to take <laughs> three more home games that they didn't deserve, but they didn't want to give up their three home games later in September. Staggering, because the Astros have a huge lead. The Rangers are, are hanging in in terms of the second wild card chase. But the Rangers basically went completely tone deaf on this one. I hope they get crushed literally. Uh, John Daniels, the young, well-respected, bright, innovative GM of the Rangers, does not look good coming out of this one. Well, is that his call or is that ownership's he call? Was quoted, he was quoted saying he didn't think it was fair to the fans who had tickets to the September series, the Ranger fans who had tickets to the September series. Absolutely tone deaf, uh, missing the big picture, in a chance to step up and kind of help the people um, in Houston who have had the worst of it, he kind of went real parochial here. And keep an eye on that story because that one, I think, is going to have ramifications and reverberations. And I fully expect John Daniels and the Rangers at some point to go, mea culpa, we blew it. Yeah, uh, they're deservingly getting excoriated right now on social media, and they will continue to be. And you know what else isn't fair, John Daniels? Uh, losing your home and livelihood to a superstorm that's not stopping anytime soon. Right, right. And, you know, when Dallas had the ice storm during Super Bowl week, and I remember that well, mm -hmm. the Steelers-Packers Super Bowl, uh, a lot of people pitched in, and I'm willing to bet maybe even someone from Houston helped out that week. We have a, we have a really jam-packed show today, Nick. Um, uh, first off, we're going to have... Uh, my friend and former colleague at Sports Illustrated, Peter King, in a few moments. Um, Peter has edited a new book, and it's by Dr. Z, uh, the beloved Paul Zimmerman of SI NFL coverage fame. Dr. Z has a new memoir out called Dr. Z, The Lost Memoirs of an Irreverent Football Writer. We're going to dive into that with Peter because the book comes out Friday, September 1st, so just a few days away from that. I have an advanced copy. It's a tremendous read. Um, I would give it two thumbs up or a uh, puff of cigar smoke uh, in honor of Dr. Z. And maybe he, a glass of cab. And maybe a glass of cab. He loved both of those. And then later in the show, we're going to have another uh, – uh, topic uh, close to your heart, the 2007 Patriots, because Kevin Sigh. Clark, Kevin Clark of TheRinger.com, a tremendous football writer, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, is going to join us as well to talk a about a piece he did about three or four weeks ago on how the 2007 Patriots changed the way the NFL plays offense and uh, defense as well in reaction. Both of those are coming up. I wanted to talk a little bit more on the, the topics du jour in the NFL. You seem to think Matthew Stafford was not worthy of being paid like the highest uh, highest <laughs> highest salary quarterback. Thirty five million dollars. Okay. Is he worth almost uh, a little over an eighth of a billion dollars? Is anybody ever worth no. no. It's just the way no, it works. Of course not. It I, was his turn. Okay, it's his turn, and that's the system. I full well understand that's the game that they're playing, a game that we'll never even be able to fully comprehend. But if you, if you need a lot on your team, and we've seen how teams recently that have felt the need to play the you're next in line, so we have to now 
rewards you with the richest contract in football or quarterbacking history game. It's hamstrung the Ravens a little bit. It hamstrung the Seahawks when they gave Russell Wilson his big deal. And now, last I checked, Detroit wasn't contending for NFC champion anytime I, soon. And Matthew Stafford hasn't exactly broached Tom Brady. He's not going to be toppling Tom Brady in terms of postseason wins anytime soon. Does he deserve to be paid $92 million guaranteed? Are you suggesting a quarterback should take a hometown discount to help the roster? Who would do that? Who? I might add. Um, look, here's, how, here's why my eyes glaze over with contract stories, because if you wait long enough, someone then tops them. So it's just this unending spiral upward. Mm -hmm. And it's why I don't get real excited about anyone's new contract, because it's always topped. It happens to be Matthew Stafford's turn as these things go. I don't make the rules. I just try to follow along with them. And so now at this moment, for however long it lasts, Matthew Stafford is is at the, the top of that hill. The only thing I'll say is, Detroit, having lived in, not just seen the abyss, lived in the abyss, having been 0-16, they know what pre-Matthew Stafford was like on the quarterback front. Do I have to show that Dan Orlovsky run out of the back of the end zone tape one more time? So they say, okay, he may not be worth it, but he's ours, and we've relatively been successful. Three playoff trips with Matthew Stafford. Right. That passes for absolute Hall of Fame credentials in Detroit for the Lions. So that's why he got Oh, paid. so wait, is this sort of one of the examples of like, well, she's a six on her own, but when she hangs Absolute. out with that group of it's girls, relative. she's a ten? Absolutely. He's the second best player in franchise history, and we all know the 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 best is, and they never really won any playoff games with him either. But they didn't go far, I should say, with Barry Sanders, as far as we all would have liked to have seen them go. But, but again... It's about a team-building effort. I get Maybe I'm spoiled by the idea of people taking a little bit less to contribute to the greater cause around these parts. I'm sure I, I have drank enough Patriots Kool-Aid. I'm shocked I'm even able to spend time out of the restroom. I would like to say that the relatives of Bobby Lane are on line two and would like a <laughs> word with you. Second best? Herman Moore is actually at the door. Better than Bobby Lane right away. And I thought of Billy Sims first. So I, I, I know Th you're talking Barry Sanders is number one. And of course. Number two. All right. Secondly, and very quickly— Deshaun Kaiser in Cleveland, not a surprise, I guess, uh, although I did actually, I was on record saying I thought Brock Osweiler was winning that job because I think he had it's a the right experience. Call. I do too. I think you might as well go with it. it I mean, it's it's kind of like, what do you have to lose? You're Cleveland and you're, you're, you're talking about your 27th different starting quarterback since 99. Mm -hmm. Good call? Absolutely. A except, though, if he is the future, do they have – enough talent around him to not kill him to just to run, to run him, him into the ground yeah. to just hey like not everyone's joe thomas and there have been some great pieces on joe thomas recently highlighting what a trooper he is what a, what a what a mind and what a talent he is no less i saw that piece on espn by jeremy Shap. you're not going to get everyone who's going to be joe thomas lose for 10 years and want to stick it out because you're a man made of a special kind of grit and grind but kaiser is the right call where where are you going to go though if you know the idea is to i don't know you know play you're you're not going to win that much with Osweiler what are you going to do play him 3 to 6 games just to take to let Kaiser watch a little bit more and not put the wear and tear in his body mind and legs or are you going to just put him out there and say you know what we we are all about giving this team the best chance to win and that's what he does 
Let's play football. The downside is you put him in a situation that he clearly wasn't ready for, and his his confidence gets broken. Uh, clearly, Hugh Jackson, the Browns coach, doesn't think that's a possibility, or he wouldn't have gone this way. I say play him, find out what you have, and get his learning curve underway. Uh, but keep a wary eye out for signs that you know you're you're actually. Uh, um, setting him back in his development if his confidence starts to flag because he's getting absolutely creamed every week. So you kind of have to have one eye on the future and one eye on the present. Risky proposition because if if his confidence does flag and if he's having a rough go of it, do you pull him and then put Osweiler out there with thoughts of maybe well, okay, he got a, he got his feet wet. We'll we'll make sure he's really ready for 2018. All right, we're going to talk to Peter King now. We have a little bit of a book review to do on this week's Cover 2 podcast. And my former colleague with Sports Illustrated is about to join us once again, the second time. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Hey, Brasco. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You're You're joined by myself and Nick Stevens, who is my new podcast partner. Hello, Nick. How are you? Hello, Peter. Nice to speak to such a football sage as yourself. Welcome to the podcast. Peter, you have somehow found time in your busy schedule, which I feel like I have a pretty good handle on after all these years, uh, of being a friend and a colleague, of somehow finding time to edit Dr. Z, Paul Zimmerman, his memoirs. And the book comes out on Friday, officially, published on September 1st called Dr. Z, The Lost Memoirs of an Irreverent Football Writer, Sports Illustrated's Paul Zimmerman. I am really excited. You've been talking about this project for quite some time. Um, For those who might be uninitiated, um, Paul Zimmerman, obviously the legendary Sports Illustrated NFL writer, uh, suffered a series of strokes in November of 2008, Um, has not been able to read write, um, unfortunately, or talk, really, since that um, series of strokes hit. And he had been working on his memoirs, I believe, since 2006. Tell us a little bit just about this project, Peter, and how you know you became involved and dedicated to making sure that this book saw the light of day. Well, I mean, first of all, there's two people or there's two entities that are responsible for this. Number one is Linda, um, his wife, who simply refused to let this die. Quick backstory: Right before, or not long before Paul had his stroke, Linda had been telling me that they just, that, that through their book agent, they just could not find a market for Paul's book. And the problem was most, because Paul basically was not big on social media at all. I mean, this is early days of Twitter anyway. Um, if geez, I'm trying to remember when Twitter was even founded, maybe 2006, but his strokes were 2008, late in 2008. And so he, he was, he was, he had found a little bit of a following on SI.com with his, with his columns. He wasn't in the magazine much anymore. And so his, his, his influence was waning among, especially among young people and people who might buy books, they thought. So Linda was just bemoaning the fact that they couldn't find a market for this book. They couldn't find anybody to buy it. And I, and so I took the book not long after he had his strokes. I took the manuscript 
and uh, I looked at it, and it was it was hilarious. It was totally, totally Doctor Z. It was it was him. It was him on, you know, sparring with Ernest Hemingway. It was him, uh, you know, talking about uh, how much he loved cheesecake and and just. And and meeting, uh, you know, interviewing Namath and Unitas, and you know, spending time with Vince Lombardi as a Cub reporter. That I mean, it was just it was pure gold. And I just and I thought at the time, well, this is preposterous. This is this book is fantastic, and people are just going to love these stories. It's like all these legends before mass media covering football began. I mean, look, Don, you know this, Nick, you know this, that now, I mean, you know, the Patriots win the Super Bowl, and all of a sudden, you know, we have Julian Edelman's memoir coming out. <laughs> We've got, you know, me doing a 76-minute podcast with Tom Brady. We've got, I mean, they're ma- you got Bill Belichick on the cover of Nantucket Magazine or whatever that was. I mean, even the reticent become incredibly huge and famous and well-known in today's football. Well, you know, that just wasn't the case back then. Paul Zimmerman was one of very, very few people who actually got to sit and drink wine with Chuck Knoll. And, you know, and, and so that stuff, the thought that that stuff would not be in the hands of football fans, I, I mean, it made me want to vomit, really. It was just terrible. And so... Over the years, I tried to help a little bit, and finally, when when uh, uh, Linda was was absolutely dogged in in trying to get people interested, and finally a year ago, we we had a Doctor Z week at the MMQB in which we ran like ten of his the combination of his old stories, and um, you know, and then uh, you know we wrote a long story about what his life was like today. It was incredibly sad by Tim Rohan, and then we just wrote a bunch of um, you know a bunch of people paying tribute to him, and so I think uh, you know there are some people in the publishing business who read some of that and Triumph Books, bless their souls, out in Chicago said we'll we'll publish it, and so a year later here we are. But it's really to me it's Linda and refusing to let this this project die and it's triumph books basically making it so that i mean i'm looking at it right now i mean the cover's beautiful it's got paul with cigar smoke over his head and it's just a fantastic remembrance um of a guy who so many people in this world i wish especially young people i really wish would would get to know him, and I think they'll get to know him through this book. It really is a legacy piece, and mm-hmm. I think it, he, he so richly deserves that legacy piece. Um, there's, you know, I combed through it last night in preparation for the interview today, Peter, and I was, I was stunned at how varied it is. You know, you, it, there's obviously he was a wine aficionado. Um, he, he loved to travel. There's plenty of NFL football in this book, but you have selected the right pieces and shown Paul in all his different dimensions. And those of us who got to know him and got to work with him, we certainly heard plenty about those other dimensions. However, 
I can't help the one fact that jumped out at me early in the book, and just it speaks to how long he was around, how much of a walking NFL history book he was. He, ri- he writes, the first pro football locker room I ever saw was in 1960, the Eagles-Packers-NFL championship game in Franklin Field in Philadelphia. He had been with the New York World Telegram and Sun for about six months. And there is a hilarious story how he basically dropped the ball in, yeah. in the Packers <laughs> locker room and got caught up in a long-winded conversation, as only Dr. Z could, with the Packers offensive lineman, Jerry Kramer, Fuzzy Thurston, about how you basically, how you, you know, how you blocked those Eagles defensive linemen and called off switches. And he was supposed to be getting Packers quotes for the main writer, the main NFL writer. Nothing. He had nothing in his notebook. So he almost ended his own NFL uh, career before it began, but that gives you a sense of the width and breadth. I thought you did a great job of just selecting pieces that show Paul in all his um, all his glory. Well, I mean, people people will ask me all, over the years. You know, they've asked me sort of what what is he like, and you know, don't get me wrong, I really like Paul, but but he's. He's an acquired taste, very much. <laughs> That's fair. And and um, you know, I, I I remember at the at the fundraiser we did for him in early two thousand nine. Uh, it was amazing. It was in it was in New Jersey. Both coaches of the local teams came: Rex Ryan and Tom Coughlin. Uh, Dick Everstall came from NBC. They bought a table. I mean, it was just we raised two hundred and thirty five thousand dollars for him, but. Everybody was saying these great things, and I got up there and I said, "Geez, Paul, if if I didn't know any better, I'd actually think you were a nice guy." And 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 I mean, over the years, I've, I've told people all these stories, and I wrote a little bit about this in my column yesterday, uh, this week. But I, I'll never forget. I was assigned to present Paul Tagliabue's case uh, at the uh, for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think it was two thousand eight. And I get up and I don't know, I talk about Tagliabue for 10, 12 minutes and, you know, here's the pros, here's the cons, here's why I think he belongs, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so, you know, as, as close as we were and we are, Paul Zimmerman just got up and shredded my case from one end to the other. Uh, mostly because he hated the way Tagliabue, he thought, took away media privileges or media rights and, and everything like that. And I walked out of there and I said, what the F is wrong with you, really? What is what is wrong with you? I mean... <laughs> That's I mean, a long this, discussion, actually. He made it all about Tagliabue and, and the media. And I said, who cares about Tagliabue? Who cares about the media? You know, I mean, it's... It, but anyway, be that as it may. And Paul looked at me like I had two heads. And it was just like, his whole thought was, hey, you know, I'm going to say what I think. I don't care that we're friends. You know, and and at the end of the day, quite honestly, I I that's the part of him that I love the most. Everything that was going to come out of his mouth was exactly what he felt. He would not sugarcoat anything if he was there with the Pope. You know, even when he should have, even yeah, even when he even when he probably should have. But but all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that to me, I think one of the things about Paul Zimmerman is that he's a unique figure 
in the history of sports journalism, and not only because of what a good and clever and really smart writer he was, but because of the approach he took. If you walked into any locker room with Paul Zimmerman, you would never, ever find another person standing with him talking to a player. Never. He always would talk to people alone. He only wanted people alone. He And he loved, loved, loved talking offensive linemen. He would he would cover a Super Bowl, and he would make sure that the winning team, he'd get all five offensive linemen on that team. He'd get them all, and he'd, and he'd talk to them all about what happened in that game and everything. So that was one of his big lessons to me over the years. He said, you know, when you are in a locker room, make sure that you get your own stuff. Don't just stand there with a pack. And, you know, and, and in large part, that was because, you know, early on, Sports Illustrated, when we were covering a game on Sunday, people weren't going to read about it till Thursday. So it did us no good to go to the post-game press conference and hear what was going to be in everybody's newspaper on Monday. Um, but anyway, just a lot of lessons, a lot of stories, and I think people really enjoy the book. Peter, as somebody who grew up reading Dr. Z on the back page of Sports Illustrated and loving his unique perspective, his POV, and his wit, I think it's great that you basically have kind of done what Steven Spielberg did years ago when Stanley Kubrick passed away and wasn't able to finish his final film, Eyes Wide Shut. You've picked up a piece and you've run with it, and I think it's really important for people maybe not necessarily my age because I still actually read magazines and newspapers but for those that are of the social media age and get everything off of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook to understand where some of these great voices and where the history and wit and legend of football came from like somebody like Dr. Z and I don't don't know how you found the time to do it but how important was that? Well look I'm I when I when I say when I talk about Linda and I talk about Triumph books, I mean, that is what got this done. I, you know, fortunately for me, <clears throat> in 2013, Sports Illustrated said, here, you know, you can have this, this website called the MMQB and cover football the way you want, you know, cover football the way you, you see fit. And, um, you know, it's changed a bit over the years, but in essence, you know, I just, thought, you know, there's a whole generation of people who really don't know who Paul Zimmerman is. They might have heard of him, but they don't know him. And I just thought how how sad it would be, how incredibly sad it would be if people never got to see uh, some of his best work, quite honestly. And and I just, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how to, how to put this. And I, I mean, it's just something that I would have felt, quite honestly, a little unfulfilled as a as a person, honestly, if this hadn't happened. Because I just would have thought how how incredibly sad it would have been. One of those things, like when I retired, I would have got a copy of the manuscript and I would have gone to Del Boca Vista, in my retirement community in Florida, and passed it around to all my neighbors and say, "You got to <laughs> read this." I, I mean. That, that's probably what I would have done because I, I just thought it was so important and so interesting. But anyway, it's it's really good that uh, that it got out and people now will who don't really know him and even people who did know him will be reminded how important he's been. Talking to Peter King, 
editor-in-chief of the Monday Morning Quarterback, uh, and also the editor of the new book, Dr. Z, The Lost Memoirs of an Irreverent Football Writer. Sports Illustrated's Paul Zimmerman comes out Friday. Uh, a tremendous read for any football fan. Peter, we have just a couple minutes left. We're actually going to be talking to Kevin Clark uh, of The Ringer, a great writer that uh, you suggested we have on the podcast. He's calling in. I can't get away, though, without this anecdote, reading it quickly. We both knew that Dr. Z, who really could be corny at times with his sense of humor, he really was kind of a cornball. I got to work with him the last eight years of his career. This one late-in-the-book anecdote is absolutely priceless and oh-so-timely in today's world. He says, Sometimes in the button-up world of corporate sports, my built-in loony streak has backfired. When I reported to the office of Donald Trump for a previously set-up interview concerning Trump's team in the USFL, the New Jersey Generals, I first had to face Trump's PR man. He told me, Mr. Trump wants to know the tenor of your questioning. I said, tell Mr. Trump it's not a tenor, it's a baritone. I waited, <laughs> I waited for the laugh that never came. He said, just a minute, please, and disappeared. Two minutes later, he's back out. Mr. Trump says he can't do the interview at this time. That is so Paul Zimmerman because he just he had no filter at times, and it got him in trouble, and he probably <laughs> lost that interview because of his corny sense of humor. Quintessential Paul, no? Trump's, Trump's lost, is all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> great stories, great stuff. Peter, thanks so much for the time. Again, the book is called Dr. Z, The Lost Memoirs of an Irreverent Football Writer. Peter edited it, but it's really Paul Zimmerman's uh, career-defining legacy piece. Thanks for the time this morning on Cover 2 Podcast, Peter. Okay, man. Thanks a lot for having me on, and uh, good luck. Uh, we'll see you at the opener. All the best. Nick, if, if you uh, weren't lucky enough to work with Dr. Z, he was, he was as Peter said, he was a total trip. He was a curmudgeon, uh, but a really interesting guy. He made you better. If you were sitting next to him in a press box covering an NFL game, I promise you, you were a little bit more on your A game with Dr. Z off your right or left shoulder. You know, Dr. Z reminded me, and again, I never had the pleasure of meeting him in person, but read him for years. Dr. Z reminds me of like the Burt Sugar of the NFL. That's a good call. A broad personality with great wit, stepped into any room, and I'm sure you knew he was there, and unfiltered, hilarious, yeah. unique. And that's why I wanted to mention to Peter how important I thought it was that he carried this legacy on and finished this book, the memoirs for him, because, again, there are people like Kevin Clark, who we'll speak to soon, who work for people like Bill Simmons, who are big contemporary voices in sports and football. And that's because of the proliferation of social media. That's the stuff that guys like me and people younger than me consume on a regular basis. But people in print may soon be forgotten and this isn't going to be appearing on any tablets. No one's retweeting, if you will. No one's faving anything from Dr. Z these days. So I'm glad this is available, and I'm glad we could tell people about yeah, it. Yeah, he, he really was he was a unique voice. I think that's the best way I could describe it, and I loved every time I got a chance to be around him. I, we, we actually competed mock draft-wise because we both did mock drafts for um, SI.com. He did his in the magazine occasionally and then later transitioned to SI.com, and um, competitive as the day is long he wanted to be right um and the few times i was i was able to outmock him were among the finest moments of my career but we enjoyed a lot of laughs uh a lot of uh, a lot of really uh, i think he shared his insights so liberally with younger writers and um 
uh, I was lucky to even be in his orbit for eight years as I was. Well, we're going to have kind of uh, obviously a look to the past with Paul Zimmerman's book, um, and then and then a younger writer in Kevin Clark, who we're going to talk to, who really is one of the sharpest minds in the covering the NFL today. Um, hasn't been doing it all that long, and yet I think he writes stuff that um, has just this broad appeal to the football fan. I've been a fan of Kevin Clark's Wall Street Journal days. I've been reading him the whole time that he's been working for The Ringer as well. And believe it or not, I, I, I think I actually have a, a very natural and fitting segue to go from Dr. Z uh, with Peter King and Kevin Clark. Like I said, I always used to read the back page of SI with Dr. Z, and he would give his Super Bowl predictions. And I remember how outraged I was when Dr. Z had the nerve to predict the Giants beating the Patriots in Super Bowl 42 because I really? thought the 2007 Patriots, these guys are unstoppable. They've already beaten them once. There's no way. He had the Giants? I'm pretty sure. If memory serves me correct, Dr. Z picked the Giants to beat the Patriots, and I was as fan of the the unstoppable offense, yeah. the all the insufferability and arrogance. I was incensed. Well, that's... See, I would have, I would have quit right there if I was him. I would have went out with mic drop and just exit left or exit right, whatever. Um, let's turn now to the those very same 2007 Patriots because there's a piece that Kevin Clark did that we want to talk to him about. Okay, joined now by Kevin Clark of TheRinger.com. Kevin's an old friend of mine. Uh, Formerly worked for the Wall Street Journal, covering the NFL, and uh, I met him. I think on a either an owners' meeting, uh, standing around a NFL owners' meeting lobby, as we are wont to do, or perhaps on one of our many NFL training camp trips. What year? Well, first of all, welcome, Kevin, and Thanks. tell me what year it was that you started with the Wall Street Journal, and our paths would have crossed for that first time. It would have been 2012. That's what I, I think thought. It was a Ravens practice. I want to say you were definitely within the first five national people i ever met was i nice to you you were incredibly helpful good good because you were clearly on the way up uh <laughs> always be nice my rule is always be nice to young phenoms with great talent and great potential because eventually they will quickly surpass you and then you'll need them later so <laughs> thank you for that kevin kevin you did a piece and now it's i believe been four weeks perhaps three or four weeks but we've been trying to get you on to talk about it um on TheRinger.com, a tremendously insightful piece, the near-perfect football team, and it's really a look back at the 2007 Patriots, and as most people remember them, the 18-1 Patriots who lost in the Super Bowl or perhaps the highest-scoring high team in then-NFL history. What you did was you peeled the onion on how this team changed the NFL game and the way it's played still to this day, and by that... Um, I'll start first and foremost with their use of the slot receiver, Wes Welker, the way they used Randy Moss, the way they attacked teams, often with shotgun formations, empty backfields. But truly, it's a great 10-year look at a football team that in the, in the moment we thought was just this absolute juggernaut. But the legacy of that team a decade later is that everybody – is trying to emulate them today in how they approach their offense. It's really incredible. It's the marriage of all of those things. It's not just that they were using the slot receiver. People had done that before. It was the way they were using it, going to them over and over again. 
I mean, the amazing thing for me is that shotgun formation, they were the first team in NFL history to run more shotgun formation than under center. And then all of a sudden now I think 70% of passing plays, something around there uh, in the NFL last year were in shotgun. I mean, so you just look at the things we thought were just little changes in 2007, and you realize that this was a team that changed everything. I mean, it's incredible to me. NFL coaches, you know this, Don, are so slow to adapt to anything, even if it's, oh, you know, Chip Kelly did this, let's wait to see if he went a Super Bowl with it. When the 2007 Patriots proved what they proved, which is that this offense can work on a grand scale, Every coach said, okay, we got to try a different version of that. It really opened the game up and led to, you know, along with the rule changes, what we have now, which is just basically unlimited passing, unlimited offense. 